parable, a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Paradigm shift, a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. In other words, a new reality. The parables of Jesus were not just simple stories or teaching illustrations to make a moral or spiritual point. They were meant to disrupt and to provoke the imagination, to invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. His parables upend our notions about life and challenge us to view his kingdom accurately, to not just simply think differently, but to live out a new reality. They are expressions of Jesus' shocking announcement that God's kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. All right, good morning. How's everyone doing? Cool. You guys are excitable. I like this. Uh, awesome. Well, my name is Steve. If we've never met before, I'm one of the pastors on staff. I get to help out with Give It Away. It's how we share the story and message of Jesus to our community and to our world. So if we've never met before, I'll be hanging on the cafe. Come and say hi. But we're here to talk about paradigm shift, okay? have been in this series for several weeks now, and so if you've been with us, uh, you know that we've been talking through uh, the parables, the parables of Jesus, and we haven't gotten to all of them, but um, this weekend is going to be the last one that we'll be doing, and so if you don't know what paradigm means, let me just preface some of that for you uh, real quick. Basically, it, paradigm is about how you view life, your lens of looking at your, uh, your life and worldview and things like that. And so when we come up against Jesus and his teaching, uh, especially through parables, um, we are forced to look at life a different way and maybe a kingdom way. And so we've summarized this up by saying uh, something like this, that Jesus' parables are meant to mess with our paradigms. Meaning, um, when we com are confronted with these parables, it's going to mess with us. It's going to mess with our worldview. It's going to mess with how we think about life and people and things like that. Um, so, um, we all have a paradigm that we're living with. We all have a pattern, uh, a way of thinking and going about life, a set of worldviews. And sometimes that is in parallel with Jesus and his, uh, his worldview and his kingdom. And maybe sometimes or maybe often it's not. And so, Jesus is going to confront those things. And the parables are really all about Jesus and his mission, which is to announce that the kingdom of God is arriving on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, since this is our last one and we haven't covered all of the parables, um, I would encourage you, if you're interested in the parables and want to get more into them, um, there's tons of resources you can check out. One is from Bible Project. Here's like a picture of uh, some of their stuff. Um, Bible Project has a lot of great resources. They have a ton of podcasts on this and videos uh, that are fun to watch. So I would encourage you to continue on in your studies in that way. Um, just to give you a snippet of some of that, uh, Tim Mackey, who uh, helps run the Bible Project, he says this about parables. He says, that Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. He'll go on and say that through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. Um, but also, the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him. Okay, so there, uh, to level set what we're talking about with the parables, that's a little bit of snippet of the parables. And for our last parable, we're going to be finding ourselves in Luke chapter 18. So, if you have a Bible, please go to Luke 18 with me. Um, there are Bibles underneath your chairs. If you'd like one, I brought my own Bible. Um, sometimes I'll have Bible on the screen, sometimes I won't, and we'll just follow along. But go on to Luke chapter 18. 
And if you're, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Luke, Luke is, uh, sometimes we call it the gospel according to Luke. And Luke is a guy who was a, um, an occupational traveling doctor. And so he wrote with a ton of detail and accuracy. And we're told in the beginning of Luke that he does these things, he writes these things down to give an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled among us in Jesus. And that has a lot to do with the kingdom of God, something, a theme that keeps coming up. And so this theme of kingdom is helpful, uh, especially as it's the very context that we have uh, leading up to our parable that we're going to be talking about today. And it's kind of funny, if you read Luke chapter 18 like we will, uh, Luke actually gives the purpose and the application of this parable like right away. He's like, hey, before we get into this, it might be a little weird, uh, let me just give you the application right away. And so um, that's pretty interesting. Uh, not many parables do that, uh, if at all. It's usually like the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, what do you mean? And uh, they're like, Jesus is like, okay, here's what I mean. But Luke is like, let me just give you that up front. So before we get to that, since he does that, I actually want to go back a little bit to get some context. So go to Luke 17, okay, just a page over, and we're going to start there. We're going to read this interesting series of stories from the Old Testament that Jesus, Jesus just kind of rattles off, and we'll see how it's connected a little bit here in a second. So we're going to get into God's Word. You guys ready? God's Word? Real good? Right on. Okay. So in chapter 17, starting in verse 20, it's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it here for you. So once... On being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then he said to the disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Okay, so that's a lot. Jesus is pretty intense here, and he usually is. So what we see here in in this going up to Luke, Luke 18 is that he goes into these commonly known in their time Old Testament stories uh, for his disciples out of a response of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, to their version of or view of the coming of the kingdom of God. 
And, and forget trying to double-click on all of these stories, okay? Because um, there's a lot here. Jesus is just giving a ton of backstory real quick. And so for the sake of time, just looking at this at face value, what we see in the stories mentioned and the way that Jesus mentions them is this, that the kingdom of God is coming, that it's awesome, yet what's going to happen is that there's going to be hardship, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be persecution, uh, perseverance required in the hope that we have of the kingdom coming. People are going to go about their life as normal, but then Jesus is going to come back and things will be destroyed. And so there's a reality that people, a lot of people, will not be part of that kingdom at their own choosing. But for the ones who will be part of that kingdom, inevitably will have to endure much. And so we see this kind of bleak story that Jesus is telling us right leading up to Luke 18 and to our parable, where in Luke 18, go with me to verse 1, says, and Luke says, then Jesus, so after all of this stuff that Jesus just said, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Always pray and not give up. So before Luke even gets right into the parable of Jesus, he like feels it super necessary to tell us something up front, which again, like I said, is kind of uncommon with parables. Usually if we get the, uh, the application, it's like the disciples saying, can you tell me what you mean, Jesus? But here, he gives it to us right up front. Here, Luke is like, let me just tell you what this is all about real quick. You just heard some weird hard stuff. You're about to hear some other hard stuff. And so my guess is he's doing that because reading Luke 17 and knowing the parable to come, Luke is like, Jesus knows that he's dropping hard scenarios on us from the Old Testament, hard themes on us from the Bible, themes that we see in our own life as well. What are those things? Well, it's that life is hard. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet fully here, and that people will choose to ignore Jesus' invitation into his kingdom. So Luke says, then Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them two things. Then he tells them, it's all about these two things. Always pray and do not give up, which is great. We can just go home because that's the application, right? We're already there. But of course, we'll keep reading. But I do want to pause on this for a moment, just so we can talk about what we mean by always pray and don't give up. So when we're talking about always pray, does that mean like always, like you should be praying right now, like we should always be in a constant state of prayer? Maybe, but I think it means at least this, let your response to everyday mundane situations from those to the big life choices in your life and everything in between be a first response to prayer. Take those things to God. Take all those things to God. Talk to him about it. Uh, plead with him about those things. Uh, petition things. Listen to him. Hear him. React to him. Cry out to your God. Always pray. When? Always. In any scenario that you have. Do that. Always pray. And then he says, don't give up. Don't give up. And perhaps this accompanies well the notion of always praying. And meaning, don't give up always praying. Okay, always pray and don't give up, always praying. Uh, in the Greek, you can also see this uh, is translated um, to don't become discouraged. Don't become discouraged. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Don't lose enthusiasm. Okay, so always pray. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. And so aside from the intensity of Jesus' stories, and words leading up to the parable in Luke chapter 18, Luke is saying, you're about to hear some more hard stuff. 
Uh, it's hard stuff to hear. So up front, I just want you to keep in mind, always pray, don't lose heart. Awesome. And then he gets into verse two. So here's the parable. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Okay, just pausing on there for a moment because here enters in kind of two characters, the judge and the widow. Uh, The story uh, is about two characters, the protagonist, the widow, and the antagonist, the judge. And there's a bit of historical context that could be helpful for us. It was probably immediately understood by the original authors that may not be immediately understood by us. And so let's get some of that so we can see the full tension of what's going on here. And so let's start with the hero the protagonist of the story, the widow. So she represents one of the most vulnerable persons in first century society. And so in this time, a woman's status relied on their familial situation or their married status. Uh, Basically, their status ultimately was determined by men. And so either by the protection and provision of their father, brother, or husband. And we're told that she's a widow, so she's in that vulnerability uh, situation, and she's no longer assumed under protection of father uh, or or brother or under the status of protection of her husband. And she's in the courtroom seemingly then alone. So she's in this courtroom alone. And now given her status and their time and place and culture, her word and presence was tragically meaningless in court. In fact, it wasn't permitted. Yet, there she came anyways. And persistently, this, uh, this parable is called the persistent widow. And so asking for justice against her adversary or against her enemy, which we don't, we're not told much about this enemy. Um, we're just told that she has one and that she's seeking justice, not revenge, but justice is what she's seeking after. Okay, so that, that's a little bit about that protagonist, the, the widow and that, culturally, um, that cultural mindset. Now, we have the antagonist, or the bad guy, the judge. And this is basically um, a corrupt dude who's um, inevitably now we're in a corrupt courtroom, okay? And so biblically speaking, a judge, um, there's a prerequisite by God that a judge should be a God-fearing judge, okay? So we know that he is not that because it says so. And so all over Scripture also, you see that this idea of justice is, is very much present all over the Scripture. And we see that justice is always to be weighted favorably, toward the most vulnerable in society, which is what this widow represents. Yet we'll see that this judge does not fear God, does not favor the most vulnerable, doesn't even care at all. And furthermore, culturally speaking, this is an honor-shame culture as well, meaning honor is everything and shame is generally avoided at all costs. Yet we see that this judge is not ashamed of his wrong judging and lack of fear of God. He just doesn't care, as the parable goes on to say. And so in verse 4, for, for some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, and this is just hilarious, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, so he's just talking to himself, like, I don't care what God thinks or people or whatever, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. He's like, I don't want to get beat up, so I'm just going to do this. So great judge, right? So a long period of time happened. We don't know how long, but a period of time happened. The judge finally acts in his role as judge, not out of duty, but out of uh, fear, out of fear that he would get beat up. So in summary, this whole parable is about a hero who's tragically, hopelessly, yet somehow relentlessly hopeful um, in seeking justice up against a judge who is 
shamefully not concerned with the position of their role and right judging, but eventually caves in to uh, pressure and selfishness of not wanting to get beat up. And then Jesus speaks up and he says, now, verse six, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And this is a little bit of a bizarre parable. We're getting, we, we get the, uh, the, the application right up front, and there's this weird scenario going on. So before we get into some stuff here, it actually might be helpful to point out some of the logic. Maybe some of you care about this, right? Some of the logic uh, or the argument that Jesus is using here, it's kind of interesting. And Jesus uses this elsewhere. We'll see another spot in the Bible in a little, in a little bit. Um, and it's kind of a weird word. Does anybody know Latin? So this is, uh, it's called an, <laughs> you're like, no, dude. <laughs> no, this is called an a for, I don't either. So this, I'm going to try this. Uh, an a, jeez, I've been doing this for three services now. An a fortiori argument, okay? If you don't believe me, Google it. Try to figure out how to spell that. Um, but it's that kind of argument. But for people who speak English, um, sometimes it's called the, uh, the argument of the lesser versus the greater. Okay, if you don't believe what I'm saying, here, here's uh, proof. The free dictionary trustworthy source, I don't know. It says it's Latin for with even stronger reason, which applies to a situation in which if one thing is true, then it can be inferred that a second thing is even more certainly true. Okay, so that's what Jesus is doing. He's like, if this fictitious thing is true, if this unjust judge is going to give justice to this widow, then how much more is it true that God will do the same? Uh, the ESV study Bible says that the comparison here is between the reluctant action of an unjust judge, the lesser, and how much more just will be the action of a just God, the greater. Okay, so this is a tool that Jesus is using to say, listen in. This is a big deal. How much more is God going to do these things? So there you go. There's the parable, pray, don't lose heart because God is going to bring justice or make bad things right again for those that follow him and continue to cry out to him. He won't forget you. Justice will come quickly. So if this corrupt, fictitious character gives justice, how much more will our good creator, God, give justice? And then he ends on something about having faith on earth. So if this fictitious yet relatable antagonist is representable to the situations, people, and scenarios of our life, yet we're told how much more is God just and able to do, to, to right the wrongs in our life and in this world, then if you're me, I have a lot more questions at this point. Wait, you're telling me that God is just and he's quick about it. You're telling me that he won't put me off and he, he's quick about these things. How much more? So I mentioned earlier that this is hard stuff to hear. And why is that? Well, for some of you, it's probably blatantly obvious at this point. It's obvious because you once maybe were a person that always prayed. You were once that person. You were once a person that aspired to never lose heart, to never become discouraged in your faith. Uh, you were once a person who taught and modeled those very things to others that you were discipling or mentoring. And now, somewhere along the, along the way, you don't know when, maybe you do know when, somewhere along the way, you became discouraged. You lost heart. The prayer never got answered, though you tried, and you prayed, and you prayed. Uh, the bad thing keeps happening, though you pray, and you pray. The justice never happened, though you pray, and you pray. 
And for others that may, that may not be following Jesus at all, this might be the very reason that you've decided that there is no God to follow. Where was the God that Christians are saying exists when you've lost your career, when you've lost your parents, or they divorced, or you lost your loved one, and so on? You never gave God a chance because you feel like God has never given you a chance. And so Luke is not naive to any of these scenarios at all. I think this is exactly why, uh, before you heard this parable, before you heard that God brings justice to those that cry out to him day and night, that he won't put you off, that justice will come quickly, and all you can think of is, where's my justice? All I have is unanswered cries. All I have is feeling put off by God. Where's haste for my situation? Uh, This is exactly why Luke tells you up front that here's what Jesus means. He means pray and don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. And I'll be honest, this response seems like kind of an impossible, uh, sort of offensive, unempathetic, shallow response from a well-meaning pastor that gives you like a hallmark Bible verse in a situation that he is unfamiliar with. It kind of feels that way. You don't know my suffering. How could you say that? I've been waiting so long and my situation has not been resolved. Yet somehow, this is still the right and proper answer for your suffering and for my suffering to the things that are not right and that are unjust in your life and in this world, the world around us. Uh, To all the things that you are still waiting on God to answer. And so, as I've been praying through uh, and thinking through this whole concept the last several uh, weeks, the part that gets me is that Jesus says that his answers, his justice comes speedily, comes quickly. And I think that's a real hangup for a lot of us if we're honest. We're like, really? It comes speedily? You must have a whole different view of time. And he does. And so I don't want to get into all of the good and bad theology that we can get into, although that would be really fun, about time and things like that. In fact, I spent way too much time trying to think of a Loki uh, analogy, uh, which didn't work out, which is okay, because only two of you uh, would know what I'm talking about. But uh, what it comes down to is that our view of time and God's view of time is oftentimes very different. It's oftentimes very different. Most of us in this room, uh, we have a specific culturally imposed view of time in which is one that we see waiting, we see patience as if I have done something wrong or as if God is, must be in the wrong or as if he must not love me and things like that. We'll look at our waiting and our patience and be like, what did I do? Where is God actually? Why is this happening to me? So instead of Loki, I, I did do some Googling and I found a, a GQ article. Um, I, I don't know what that means for my character or person. I don't know if that's positive or negative. I don't normally look at GQ, but uh, for cultural uh, reasons, I found this one, okay? And I thought it was interesting for this conversation. It goes on, this guy says, uh, in the United States, we absolutely think of our time as individual and also as our scarcest resource. When we imagine productive time, time being used wisely, time being used well, Waiting is contrary to all of that. If you make me wait, you're limiting my ability to be successful in this life. Other people control our time in a way that makes us feel powerless. We don't feel in control. I think that sense of powerlessness and lack of control really drives our hatred of waiting. I think that's insightful. I think a lot of us do have this hatred of waiting. We feel like something's wrong if we have to wait. We get antsy and we don't like that. And when we talk about that in theology with uh, talking about God, I think the missing thing here, I would say in my humble opinion, the thing missing is that the problem is that we think of ourselves most often as our own gods, running our own kingdom. 
And that's sort of the, what the pursuit of being in absolute control means. That this enticement of, and therefore the natural consequence inevitably of Adam and Eve of the fruit when they willingly and deceitfully ate from, ever since then, the idea came into place that we ought to be in control of ourselves, that we ought to be gods of our own kingdom. And so when we have that mindset that's deeply seated into us, when, when we look at God who we put our trust in and our hope in, and when he doesn't come through on something for us, what happens? We, we feel like we can't control ourselves. We feel like we can't control the situation. Then we have a huge crisis of faith moment. And then we become discouraged. We lose heart. We turn away from God who we feel has abandoned us. And, and we're met with the reality that we weren't actually in control of anything anyway. And so we lose heart. And we couldn't fathom, for those of us who follow Jesus especially, we couldn't fathom that Jesus' answer to our situation, to our prayers, would ever be wait, or not yet, or even straight up no. We couldn't fathom that sometimes. Let's look at what Isaiah has to say about this. I think there's some really interesting insight from Isaiah. I'm not going to have it on the screen other than the place that I'll be at. I'm just going to read it out for you from the ESV. In verse 27 to 31, Isaiah says this, check this out. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But, check this out, verse 31. But they, those who wait on the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall mount up with, like wings, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you hear that? Do you hear what Isaiah is saying here? He's saying basically those who put their, ultimately those who put their trust, their faith, their allegiance, their hope, their patience in and on the Lord Yahweh, they're built different. They're built different. They get a new kind of strength. For those that wait for the Lord will have a new kind of strength that will be given to you. It's like a discipline. When you find yourself waiting on the Lord, you are gonna be given a new strength. They shall be mounted up like wings, like eagles, which that's some weird stuff, but uh, that's, that's what it says, right? They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So those who wait on the Lord, they have a new kind of strength. That's what Isaiah says. Uh, I like, um, in the same kind of regard, uh, Eugene Peter, Peterson, in his book, Tell It Slant, he says it this way. Uh, he says, the story of the widow, Luke 18, one through eight, helps us to reimagine what we so often designate as unanswered prayers, as something quite different. If we think that the silence of God before our prayers is a matter of calloused indifference, think again. God is the exact opposite of the evil judge in the story, opposite in every detail. Prayer is not begging God to do something for us that he doesn't know about, or begging God to do something for us that he is reluctant to do, or begging God to do something that he hasn't time for. In prayer, we persistently, faithfully, trustingly come before God, submitting ourselves to his sovereignty, confident that he is acting right now on our behalf. We are his chosen ones. Don't ever forget it. 
God is right now, the word is quickly in verse eight, working his will in your life and circumstances. So same conclusion, keep praying, don't quit. Keep praying, don't quit. To be the people of God and that always pray and that don't ever give up. And Jesus says the same thing. He has the same kind of argument that he gives and he has the same kind of analogy here if we wanna look at Matthew 7, verse seven. And so Matthew 7, verse seven. It's not gonna be on the screen again. I'm gonna go to it in my real Bible, mostly because flipping the pages helps me to slow down. Okay, Matthew 7, starting in verse seven to 12. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, here's that uh, a fiori argument. Um, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil... Uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Okay, so look at Matthew 7 with that same kind of intention that we get from the parable and read it this way in verse 7. It says, asking will be given to you. Read it this way. Keep asking and it will give, be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps asking will receive. Everyone who keeps seeking will find. Everyone who keeps knocking at the door, the door will be open. And that tells us a lot about our God, that he wants us to keep praying, to never give up, to not lose heart. Your father wants to give you answers and give justice and give you those things quickly. Won't your father in heaven give you what you keep asking for when it's aligned for the very best thing for you and aligned with God's will. So we see it all over scripture. And there's a last thing. Well, there's more things, but uh, we'll, we'll look at verse eight again. So the conclusion, always pray, don't give, ever give up. But looking at verse eight again, where it says, however, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, what's really interesting about this, if you read it with some Greek in mind, you'll read it as, will he find Will the Son of Man, will Jesus find the faith on earth? Meaning, what he's asking, it's like a rhetorical question. He's saying, will Jesus find, when he comes back, will Jesus find the faith of this fictitious character, the widow, the same kind of faith? Will he find that in you? Will he find that in me? Will he find that in the church? Will he find that on earth? Will he find it in you? Will you be the person that despite all odds against you, despite all the pain and suffering and unanswered prayer and injustice in you and in the world around you, will you have the faith that this fictitious yet relatable widow had? So I don't know your exact situation, but I know that you're a human like me, and I know that you have had and will have wrongs and hurts and pain in your life. I know that you have had or will at some point cry out to God, whether you know Jesus or not, you'll cry out to God, and you won't feel like he's answering you. You won't feel that. I know that that'll do something to you. I know that you'll, at some point, if you haven't already, lose heart, become discouraged because of the brokenness in you and around you and maybe the unanswered prayers. 
And so what are you going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Sure, the Bible says here, it says pray and don't stop. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. Don't become discouraged. Don't lose heart. Okay, sounds practical enough, but here's what I want to give us. I want to give us kind of two things I want to present. One is like a quick thought on how to not lose heart. And the other one is kind of a practice I want to invite you into, a practice in praying through the scripture as a way to pray always, as a way to pray and not give up and to wait on the Lord. In fact, I was having coffee with a friend and he was like, I was going over this message and he was like, you're going to talk about Proverbs uh, 4.23, right? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> what, what is that? And so uh, he mentioned it. I was like, I do need to talk about this. So Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. So how do we not lose heart? Keep, keep praying for sure, but also you have to guard it. You have to guard it. And there's actually something even before that. So Proverbs is written by King Solomon to his son, and he's telling his son basically that you will lose heart if you lose your belonging. And something to look out for Jesus is Jesus never lost his uh, lost heart. He never lost belonging. He knew exactly whose he was. He knew that he was the father's. He knew that he belonged to the kingdom that was not this one. He knew where he belonged. He knew that. And so for us, when we have despair in our hearts, when we go to lose heart, who, who do we belong to? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. You cannot understand who you are until you understand whose you are. Are you in Christ? So for those of you who are in Christ, that's your status. That's your identity. That's your belonging. Guard that. Guard your heart from your lack of patience, from your discouragement, and so on, so that you don't lose heart. Maybe you're here, you're not actually following Jesus. Who and what do you belong to? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever thought about that, especially in light of eternity? Well, Jesus invites you to belong again to him and to his kingdom. And so with that, I'll invite the band up, and I'm going to invite you into uh, this other thing here, this other practice of prayer. Okay, so this is some work that I want us to do with the Spirit. So and we just, at this time, I want us to let the Spirit work in our hearts, in our minds, in ways that only the Spirit can, to guide you in how to rep- respond to this parable that Jesus has, how to respond to his mission and to his kingdom, how to respond with a new paradigm in this way. And a quick preface, by the way, if you start reading past uh, verse 3, it gets pretty intense, especially to uh, people that don't follow Jesus. You're just like, all of a sudden, we're like praising God, talking about God, and all of a sudden, it's like, and these things are going to happen to people that don't know Christ. And it's like, whoa, it's really intense. And I don't normally shy away from those things, but for our purposes today, uh, I think we just need that invitation to pray through these things, to pray about waiting on God. Because throughout the scriptures, that's what we see Jesus do. He first invites you to come and see, to follow him, to do those things. He invites you to know him and to be known by him. Yes, there's a reality for those who completely uh, ignore and disobey God, and that is all true, but the also truth is that he died for you. He came so that you would belong to him and to his kingdom once again. And in part, that's a choice that we have to make, to belong to God through Jesus. So, 
This might be awkward for some of us, but hopefully we just embrace that, okay? So I want you to actually go in this with me, and I want you to pray these words out loud. And now, also a preface, you're not supposed to change the Bible, okay? But the yellow words here, they normally say, listen to my words, consider my lament. I changed them to R, so we could just make it more communal, so that we can just pray that way. Make sense? No one's mad at me? Okay, cool. Um, so, Psalm 5, let's read and pray this out together to Jesus. You guys ready? Awesome. Well, Lord, listen to our, Lord, our words, Lord. Consider our lament. Hear our cry for help, our King and our God. For to you we pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear our voice. In the morning, we lay our requests before you and wait expectantly. Lord, you are so good. God, thank you that this is true, God, that we wait on you expectantly. We wait on you hopefully, Lord. And God, sometimes that waiting is harsh. Sometimes that waiting uh, makes us discouraged and we lose heart, God. I pray that for anyone here today who is losing, who has lost heart because they're waiting on you, Lord, God, give them that strength that we say we get from Isaiah. God, would you give us that strength, the strength that you give us in our waiting, Lord. Help us to wait well, Help us to be a people, a church that waits on you well, Lord. Not to see that as a bad thing, but to see your waiting or your not yet or even your no's as something that is strengthening us in you, Christ. God, maybe for those who haven't followed after you for some of these same things, Lord, that they would just come and see that you are good. Come and see what that looks like to wait on the Lord, to wait on you. Lord, please do that work in and through us. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.